0: This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. My guest is Derek Jensen. Derek is author of over 30 books, including A Language Older Than Words, Endgame, Volume 1, The Problem of Civilization, and Deep Green Resistance. He was named one of Utney Reader's 50 visionaries who are changing your world. Derek, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Doing great, thank you. So your latest book is Bright Green Lies with co-authors Lier Keith and Max Wilbert. The subtitle is How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. Why did you, Lier Keith, and Max Wilbert feel the need to write this book?
1: Well, the book really started when I was writing columns for a magazine called Orion, and one of the editors there wanted me to debate someone. And this person uh, coined the term bright green. And our fundamental disagreement was that he thought you can make minor tweaks to the system, and it will still be sustainable. And I think that Civilization is inherently unsustainable and is destroying life on the planet. And part of the one of my conditions for doing the debate was that it be written, and for reasons I'll get into in a moment. And we started it that way, but then he said, No, he didn't want to do written, he would only do it by phone. So I said, Okay, I'll do it by phone on the condition that uh, both of us have to agree that this thing gets goes out before it does. And I never agreed to it going out because um, I one of the problems I have with with the oral debate format in general is that somebody can just make stuff up. And you know, unless you uh because you don't know what they're going to make up, you have to have every fact ready to rebut it. And it can so often just end up, well, this is true. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Which is exactly what happened with the debate. And when we got off the the, the phone, um, I did like five minutes of research and found that many of the claims he was making were simply false. For example, he was saying that it's possible, So so I was talking about how one of the ways that that we can talk about civilization being inherently unsustainable is you do full cost accounting of items so you know we're both wearing reading glasses and you know where did the plastics come from where did the glass come from where did the energy come from to fabricate all this and i was talking about how mines are inherently unsustainable and they uh mines Every hard rock mine on the planet toxifies groundwater. And he said, Well, it's possible to have our current way of living without mining simply by uh you know disassembling and recycling, et cetera. And like I said, it took me about five minutes afterwards to look up to discover that, and I don't remember the exact numbers, which is the point, but Uh, copper is one of the most easily recyclable metals in the world. And even though it's already mostly recycled, something like 70% of all the copper that's used every every year is new copper because of increasing demand. So I started thinking after that, wow, there's all these claims people are making about wind and solar energy, about, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff out there and not enough people are rebutting it so that's how the book developed is that there are well two reasons one is that and the other reason that the the book developed is that at one point environmentalism was about saving wild places and wild beings and there's been a transformation so that mainstream environmentalism is no longer about saving wild places and wild beings but it's about finding new ways to fuel this destructive culture. Mm -hmm. So for example, you can have a million people march in the cities of New York or Washington DC or Paris or London. And if you ask them why they're marching, they'll say to protect the planet. But if you ask them for their specific demands, they are, we want more subsidies for wind and solar industries. So they've been basically turned into a lobbying arm of industrial capitalism. That's horrifying. And so what you'll find is that a lot of mainstream environmental organizations are actually lobbying for destructive activities like various forms of mining. Um, And so we wanted to reclaim the environmental movement back to its, its... you know, back to what it was when we were young activists, where it was about protecting wild nature. So it was th- those are the motivations for writing the yeah. book.
0: Well, one thing I really like about the book is that it uh, you address not, not only address, you thoroughly go into supply chains. It's like you cannot understand solar or wind or electric cars or anything else unless you understand the supply chains. And the book just—it's it, it, a tremendous resource, very well researched. Um, so you're starting with the mining and, and going from that. So, you know, isn't isn't the the renewable energy, solar panels, wind turbines, electric cars? Don't that doesn't that require a lot of mining? Oh, absolutely. Um, they
1: require the mining of, of steel. They require the mining of, you know, copper, all, all the other material, all the other minerals you'd expect, plus rare earths mining, um, rare earths are types of minerals necessary for all sorts of electronics, whether it's computers or cell phones or, um, or batteries or wind turbines. Um, and it's uh, incredibly destructive. And there are uh, huge new gold rushes, except they're lithium rushes, happening because of this uh, so-called green economy. And it's just extraordinary to me to have people who are considered environmentalists who are arguing explicitly for the next great industrial revolution and they're arguing for massive industrialization um, on unprecedented scales. And there's this guy, um, Mark Jacobson, who is an engineer who's done all sorts of studies on how to convert the entire grid to so-called renewables. And the reason I call them so-called is Ozzie Zenner wrote a really good book called uh, Green Illusions. Oh, and in there, he doesn't call them alternative energy, he calls them alternative oil or hmm. because it's just it's the oil economy is required for all right. of these other firms. Right. We'll talk about Jevons' paradox in a minute. But um Mark Jacobson has plans for how you could convert the entire economy to so-called renewables. And this would require like just for his windmills, for example, and I am I'm, I'm making up the numbers, they but you know, we've got them in the book. Basically, like one and a half times the entire world's output of iron for a year to 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 just make windmills. And this and he would also call for, I don't remember what it is, like a 15 times increase in the amount of hydro storage in the United States. There's not there's not enough rivers to do that. That's just not does not I mean never mind the harm that hydro does to rivers. It's just not even physically possible,
0: right
1: And you know i don't I don't have any problem with uh, Mark Jacobson doing that that's you know, I find those sorts of calculations kind of fun myself. you know, at one point, just for the heck of it, I know this is terrible, but we cut this out of the final book i I calculated. Because when we were discussing biomass and they're you know burning, how many trees would have to be burned to power you know a certain chemical factory in Germany? And because the trees are living beings too, you know, they're because I mean we don't consider them to be to have lives as as well, we don't really consider them to be significant lives, we as a culture. But their lives are just valuable to them as ours is to us, as as yours is to you and mine is to me. So I calculated instead of it burning trees, we were burning human beings, hmm. and how much energy, how many how many human beings you have to burn to keep this BASF factory running, and it was like the entire human population every year or something. Hmm. And I mean, so I find those sorts of calculations, you know, interesting to do. It's just, it's crazy to actually try to base policy on them. And, you know, when he's saying 15 times increase in hydro, that's just, that's just nuts. Um, and then another, there's, there, there are a couple other things I want to mention before we move on. One of them is just the last couple of days, California, I'm not sure where they are in the process, but California is in the process of banning uh, diesel semis by 2040 or something. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is that, okay, first off, I'm not interested in saving civilization. I'm interested, I'm not interested in fueling the economy. I'm interested in saving wild nature, but the the, the bright greens explicitly are interested in saving the economy. They say, again and again, we're trying to save civilization. By converting it over and one of the problems is that gas and diesel are incredibly energy dense forms of of storing energy so if you have a, a semi tractor a big semi on the highway um, it can go about 600 miles on a tank of diesel and it can have about a sixty pound payload and Diesel has a energy density of about forty-five megajoules per kilogram, and it doesn't matter what a megajoule is here. The important thing is just the number forty-five. Lithium-ion, like in you know Priuses or whatever, lithium-ion batteries have an energy density of about one megajoule per kilogram, and what that means it's one forty-fifth as energy dense. And what this means is that you could have a semi to have a range of 600 miles. You'd have to have like 50,000 pounds or 55,000 pounds of batteries for a 60,000 pound payload. You've only got 5,000 pounds left of to chip. I don't, I don't understand. It it seems like California is attempting to wave a magic wand because this, 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 this won't, won't work. That's one problem. Another problem with all of this is something called Jevons paradox. And Jevons was a uh, economist in the 19th century who studied what he called the coal question, which is, and one of his questions was, if you increase the efficiency with which you use coal, what does that do for coal demand? And If you just think about it for a moment, you would think that it would decrease demand for coal, because if you make coal, coal use twice as efficient, so your stove is twice as efficient, you only have to use half as much to heat your house, then, well, let's use half as much coal. But that's not how it actually works in practice, how it actually works in practice, in part because most energy sources are used by industry, not by individuals, mm-hmm. is that what you do is you increase the size of your business. Mm-hmm. So you increase efficiency with use of coal, you find new uses for it. And so actually, increased the coal efficiency use makes coal use increase. And two things about that one is that this is absolutely true with the efficiency of American homes, that the energy efficiency That American homes are I don't know about about twice as efficient as they were fifty years ago or one and three quarters something, and not coincidentally, houses have increased. They've almost doubled in size. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So basically, they use the same amount of energy as they did before. Um, So as a result, there when you bring in a new energy technology, there's not a diminution in the old energy technologies. They just keep on going. And this is our, our economy has an, all ha, has a, a voracious appetite for energy. It'll take energy however you give it, and it yep. keeps consuming that energy. It just uses more and more. And this has been true forever.
1: The first first source of human energy, or first source of energy humans used was really just you know muscle power. Mm-hmm. And then when they started burning wood, they didn't decrease muscle power. they just mm-hmm. added it and then go along you know, thousands and thousands of years and they get oil and, or coal and that doesn't decrease the amount of wood they use, it just adds on top. Then you add oil, does that decrease the amount of coal? No. You eventually add hydro, does that decrease the amount of coal, oil, et cetera? No, every single one just adds on top and that's exactly what's happening now. So in a lot of ways, all of this talk of, you know, saving, you know, going to so-called renewables to uh, stop global warming is really much more about peak oil than it is about anything. It's It's just meeting the absolutely, as you said, you know, the insatiable demands for energy of this culture, and that demands a lot of money, and there's no way people are going to just hand over the money for no reason. So, well, let's get them worried about global warming and say we can stop global warming. I don't want to be really clear. I'm not saying global warming isn't happening. It's not terrifying. It is. What right. I'm saying is that wind and solar are not a solution.
0: Right. Well, one thing that I've noticed, if you look at the Energy Information Agency, there's a number for the amount of energy that the united states consumes total and that number is close to 100 quadrillion btu's so the that that number 100 is that going to keep going up is that going to level off is that going, and there is really i don't think any if that number keeps going up i don't think it matters what What we do with solar or wind. I mean, you're going to need, you're going to, if that number keeps going up, you're going to continue to need fossil fuels to fuel it all.
1: Yes. Yes. And the only, the only times it has gone down have been 2008 during the recession. And what was it, 2017 during the recession? That was another recession. There were, or maybe it was during COVID. Anyway, the only time it's gone down is when economic activity has gone down. And that's a, pretty straightforward correspondence, but it, I mean, one of the things that even long before I wrote this book, one of the things I was saying is that what do all of the so-called solutions to global warming have in common? What they all have in common is they take industrial capitalism as a given and Mm -hmm. the planet as having to conform itself to industrial capitalism. And that's precisely backwards. Because without a living planet, you don't have any economic system whatsoever. So your economic system has to be
0: dependent on the health of the planet. And so that's uh, what you call solving for the wrong variable. There's, exactly. there's different variables in play. Which ones are we going to hold constant or take as a given and which ones are we going to work with and try to reduce or diminish okay
1: yes and it 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 is you know i've written so many books about all this but the cognitive dissonance still gets to me because when i discuss let's just dis, when i say let's discuss the insatiable energy demands of this culture People think I'm crazy for thinking that that should be on the table. Mm -hmm. But even the New York Times has had articles about how humans may go extinct because of the ecological effects of this way of living. So the point is they can blithely discuss possible human extinction. And somehow I'm the crazy one for saying maybe we should... Mm -hmm. uh, lower our energy use mm-hmm. and the problem I mean, there's many many problems here but one of them is that their identification with the system is stronger than their identification with either wild nature or the continuation of human existence i mean what's really this means is that the continuation of this culture is more important to them than the continuation even of human life, much less blue whales.
0: This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville.
1: Uh, on one hand, I find it absolutely extraordinary. On another, I do understand, and, you know, Daniel Quinn has talked about this about how we've made ourselves dependent for our very lives on the system that's killing the planet. And, um, I'm going to discuss how I talk about it and also how Lewis Mumford talks about it. But how One of the ways I talk about it is that if your experience is that your food comes from the grocery store and your water comes from the tap, you will defend to the death the system that brings those to you because your life depends on it. If, on the other hand, your food comes from a land base and your water comes from a river, you'll defend to the death those because your life depends on it. And the problem is that the system has all along the way, inserted itself between us and the living planet. And the way Lewis Mumford talked about this is, he asked, how is it that we have all surrendered so easily to this sort of authoritarian system that, and and what he means by authoritarian is not a tin pot dictatorship, but instead, one that limits our choices to what the system provides mm-hmm. so that we can't have access to wild salmon and rivers, but we can have access to 27 kinds of toothpaste because that's what the system will provide us. He says, how is it that we've surrendered so easily to this? Or as Lier always says, um, if there's anybody left hundred years from now, they're gonna wonder what was wrong with us that we didn't fight like hell when the world was going down. And part of the answer is, according to Mumford, that, Um, we have been given a magnificent bribe that we get access to ice cream 24-7. We get access to miraculous medical processes. We get access to, I mean, where, where are you physically located right now?
0: I'm in Louisville, Kentucky.
1: Okay, so you're in Kentucky. I'm in California. And we're talking here like this is, like there's nothing special going on. Right. And the truth is, you know, 800 years ago, somebody who lived in Kentucky might not even believe that there is such a thing as the ocean.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And 500 years ago, there is, you know, somebody living where I live now, three miles from the ocean would not have believed there is this big thing called the Buffalo that there used to be plenty of in Kentucky. And so us communicating like this is a minor miracle. And, that's one of the reasons we bought into this. I just as, speaking of minor miracles. I want to say one more thing, which is David Ehrenfeld has this great point about how, in his book, the arrogance of humanism, about how because we can commit minor miracles, um, that makes us think we can commit major miracles, mm-hmm. like manage the entire planet, and and he doesn't dismiss, and nor do I, these minor miracles. I mean, it's a miracle to be able to. I had open our surgery a couple, three, four, three years ago. That's it's a miracle. I mean, they actually open your chest and they stop your heart, Mm -hmm. and they have for like four hours while they have this machine pump blood and oxygen. That's that's pretty miraculous, right? It's also a real drag. Don't ever have it done if you don't have.
0: Yeah, I know.
1: But that doesn't mean that we can manage the oceans. Doesn't mean we can manage a forest. Doesn't mean we can understand a forest. Doesn't even mean we can manage a human body. Means we can do that specific thing. It's an engineering feat but that's not the same as these larger, it's, it's. I I know I'm really rambling off track, but I'll say one more thing, which is so much of my work from the beginning has come from a fundamental conservatism. And I don't mean by that, you know, that I'm, I I don't mean sort of a social conservatism. I just mean that I think it's incredibly stupid to uh, kill off salmon And salmon exist for their own sake. They exist for the forest's sake. They're beautiful and wonderful. They have their own lives independent of us. Nonetheless, I think it's incredibly stupid to kill salmon when you might need to eat them tomorrow. And, you know, people 200 years ago where you live, they could have counted on eating passenger pigeons. Mm -hmm. And now when the crash comes, when this system is no longer there to provide food for us, it's like those passenger pigeons aren't there anymore. Too bad, so sad, you know? And I'm I'm not saying too bad, so sad for them. I'm actually heartbroken for them, but we don't get to eat them. And we will be hungry and we will be angry. You know, it's like when I was in second grade, I became an environmentalist really in second grade because somebody put in a subdivision next to where I lived. And I remember thinking, where are the grasshoppers gonna go? Where are the meadowlarks gonna go? Where are the cottonwoods and the garter snakes gonna go? And that was the language I had when I was seven. The language I didn't have when I was seven, but I had the understanding was you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. I understood this. This is not cognitively challenging. And none of the stuff that we put in Bright Green Lies is cognitively challenging. It's uh, the research took a little time. It's emotionally challenging, but cognitively it's not challenging to recognize that solar panels come from somewhere. And they're made of materials that came from somewhere. And somebody, human and non-human, already lived on that land that had to be destroyed to make those solar panels. And then it took energy to move those solar panels. And um, I've heard people talk about how they think they're going to have a new age of sail for uh, global transport. And do they have any idea the scale of global transport? That's, that's something we did. I don't remember if we did this in the book or if we just did this for the heck of it, but we we took some materials, for all the chain of supply and we asked how many trucks was that piece of equipment on? Mm-hmm. You know, take a chair, take it, there's, there's some fly where there's a, a plant stand over there. So that plant stand first there was, it was cut, it was put on a log truck, taken to the mill. Then it went from the mill, probably to a railroad line, then from the railroad line to, I mean, we'll just, we'll say there's not a central warehouse and we'll just take it straight to the, to the Home Depot. And then, you know, and then it's taken by a pickup from there. And I, all of that is not cognitively challenging to think about.
0: But it, it's it's out of sight, out of mind. It's located somewhere else. That, and, and it's also not talked about because the people at the New York Times are under tremendous pressure, not that I sympathize with them, but they're under pressure to not talk about things that are unflattering to the people that pay their bills, the owners, the sponsors, etc. There's a great line from 100 and some years ago by Henry Adams. The
1: press is the hired agent of a moneyed system set up for no other reason than to tell lies where the interests are concerned, and there's that. Plus, there's another of my favorite lines by Upton Sinclair: "It's hard to make a man understand something when his job depends on him not understanding it," and that's true for the people at the New York Times. It's true for for all of us. Um,
0: it gets unfortunately. Harder- we have a system where, you know, something uh, a forest doesn't count until you cut it down and turn it into something marketable that then it counts so you're taking something that is valuable but it's not given a number and then you're turning it into something that's just so we've got this gravy train going that doesn't benefit most people it only benefits a very few people but it's like hey free stuff and take it and sell it on the market and get money and power
1: well that's exactly right and that's exactly what GNP is GNP is a measure of how quickly the living is converted to the dead. It's mm. a measure of how quickly living forests are converted to two by fours. Schools of fish are converted to fish sticks. It's exactly what you said, that a a run of salmon has zero value until it is put in a can and sold. Zero value to the system. Obviously, has tremendous value to forests, tremendous value to Wild nature, tremendous value to themselves. You know, one of the one of my my one of the 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 best books I ever read was Neil Evernden's *The Natural Alien*. Um, I read it when I was in my twenties. I was late twenties. I was at the at a at a library in Spokane, Washington, and it jumped off the shelf of me. And I opened it, and the page I opened it to had this discussion where he said, "What do you do if after you've given some?" impassioned defense of some creature's existence, the other person says to you, well, that's fine, but what good is it? And he said, really, the only answer you can give to that is, well, what good are you? Mm. And not to insult them, but Mm -hmm. to show the absolute stupidity of that question. And because, and, and at one point in that book, he breaks down what a human would be worth if you sold us for fertilizer, um, you know, your bones are probably worth, I don't know, a couple, but I don't remember what the numbers were at all, but basically, you know, you're worth $7 or something in terms of fertilizer. And, and that's horrifying to think about, but that's exactly how we look at trees. I mean, there's a great line by a Canadian lumberman. When I look at trees, I see dollar bills. And... That's part of the problem is if when you look at trees, you see dollar bills, that's how you're going to treat them. And that's what this entire culture does is value them only as as dollar bills. And that's that's not a way to I mean, that is a way to guarantee that you're going to destroy
0: the planet. This gets into the issue of human supremacy, and I know you wrote a book on that, and uh, I, I want to say that one, one of the ways, one of the, you know, several important ways that your work has had an influence on me is to uh, understand that other living things have an independent right to exist. They're not just instruments they, they don't just have the right to exist because they are useful to us, but they have their own being. And it's like you said, their life is important to them as they as our life is to us.
1: Absolutely. But, but, they...
0: but, but human supremacy is like a fish in water. It's how we think. It's how we live. And if you suggest something other than human supremacy, then you're the oddball. I know. It's crazy. And,
1: and people see it when you apply it to them. But somehow, and also, here's the thing, too, is most people understand that non-humans have personalities in their private lives. So, for example, we know that Tony, the dog, has a different personality than Hercules, the dog, or Eileen, the dog. We all recognize that in our own lives, oh, this kitty likes to do this, this kitty doesn't like to do that. And and we recognize that we have conversations with them yeah. that, yeah.
0: I mean, if, if your dog or cat, do you have
1: any dogs or cats?
0: I don't, I've been around them a lot, but I just don't have any. now. I, my neighbor's cats like my place more than, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but, so, but...
1: so when you did have a cat, or if, if the neighbor's cat comes over and you have a water dish down, how does the cat let you know that the water dish is empty? Looks at you, looks <laughs> at you, looks at the dish. We all know that. and. My book of language older than words was originally, it ended up being something completely different, but originally it was supposed to be about the dissonance between our public and private discourse on that. That we all recognize in our private lives, and I would say, if you had a conversation with a non-human and everybody had the same response, which is, yes, but I've never talked about it before because people think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. And so if, if we recognize that there's different personalities in different dogs, Why can't we recognize the same thing for wild bears? Mm -hmm. Why can't we recognize the same thing for uh, wild salmon? Why can't, you know, when I interviewed Neil Everton, I said, look, so if we don't make the line between significant humans and insignificant non-humans, where do we draw that line? And he said, why draw the line at all? And that was one of the best things anybody's ever said to me. And then I just want to want to go on about this as we can, you know, we've been talking about plant, you know, trees, trees, dollars on the stump, and but and I wrote about this in Myth of Human Supremacy, that there is so much research being done on plant communication. And this isn't just woo-woo stuff. Mm-hmm. This is right. so if a plant has aphids, it will send out messages, uh, they their pheromones. It'll send out chemical messages uh, that will call ladybugs and call wasps and call everybody else to come eat the aphids. And why is it that the only form of communication that we allow is real communication is when a creature draws in air through its, you know, into its lungs and then expels it and uses vocal cords. Why? I mean, the 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 dog or cat didn't use uh, vocal cords when it looked at the water dish, looked at mm-hmm. you, looked at the water dish. Mm-hmm. Or here's a great example. I love this example. Years ago, so I now live in my mom's house. My mom died four years ago. For the last twenty years of her life, I lived just down a path. Um, you know, I committed to living near her for the rest of her life, and then it was it was great. Anyway, so I had dogs. And when I would walk up to my mom's house, the dogs weren't allowed inside here for whatever reason. And so they would sit on the porch when I'm inside. And then when I would go home, they would immediately get up and walk with me. But if I was going to go into town, they wouldn't get up off the porch. <laughs> and it took me a couple years, literally a couple years to figure out how they knew. I thought it was magic. You know, how do they know whether I'm going home or whether I'm going into town? And finally, I realized it's because if I'm holding car keys in my hand, Mm -hmm. I'm going into town. And the dogs recognize that right away. Mm. But it literally took me two years to figure that that out. It's magic. And my point is that they were, in this case, a lot smarter than I was. I mean, they figured this out pretty quickly. Um, And I think that it's just the world is much richer and more vibrant and more strange and wondrous than we could ever imagine. And there are all these other beings out there living. I mean, you know, it freaks me out enough when I go into the grocery store and I see 200 humans. And I I think, Oh my gosh! This person has hobbies. This person's foot hurts. This person is tired. This person's happy. This person is really mad at, you know, her boyfriend. You know, it, it just to, to think that all of these are individuals, you know, even even among humans, that can be really hard to, you know, and Martin Buber and I and Thou talked about how you can't walk through life recognizing everyone is a being at every moment or you just, you existentially explode, because at some point, you just have, you know, you just have to recognize that they're background characters for you for right now. Um, And I mean, that doesn't mean you do terrible things to them. It just means that you can't acknowledge the full beingness of every being at every moment. That's hard enough just for humans, but now add non-humans to it, where the world is so full of all of these conversations and lives and You know, every crow is an individual, and every mosquito is an individual, and every, you know, goldfish is an individual. Doesn't mean that you can never, you know, slap a mosquito that's biting you on the forehead. Um, but just means that there is this the world doesn't just consist of background, it's not just scenery for a play that you're the only character in.
0: Mm -hmm. And And so that affects your thinking when you think about should we develop this solar array or should we plow this field and spray chemicals, especially on a large scale? So... Yeah, I mean, what it's... is the impact of this? Getting back to how bright green lies really looks at supply chains. If a, if I buy a product and it and it's in my hand, there's a whole story about where all those ingredients came from, and it affects, you know, it, it affects a, a lot of things in a lot of different places. But in any one place, you're talking about, uh, you know, a mine has destroyed. Uh, the the the, uh, the habitat for a lot of things, you know. Well, absolutely, and and that
1: doesn't alter the fact that it is the logic of capitalism is really, in many ways, is is extremely compelling. That if I have a choice between, um, I was going to say buying a computer, but all computers require mining. But let's say we'll just drop off the mining and everything else. And say, I have a choice between buying a hard drive that was manufactured by slave labor in Thailand that costs one third of a hard drive f- fabricated in the United States with union labor. You know, which one am I going to buy? I'm probably going to buy the one that costs a third as
0: much because, because. Right. When you're shopping, you're uh, you're looking for price and quality and availability yep and, and, and it's a game yeah and and if, if if I have
1: enough disposable income that I can uh go ahead and pay the three times as much for the union made, you bet, but that's only if I've got this is one reason by the way, that I am okay, I need to be careful how I say this. I am kind of opposed to labeling uh, organic and non-organic mm-hmm. because organic is more expensive and basically it's just ends up being a luxury good. And the reason I can say I'm opposed to it is because I'm actually opposed to non-organic existing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, right. but, but, but when it does exist, it ends up it's a luxury good. What I rather pay? You know, I and I don't know the prices right now, but would I rather pay okay, I was just at I was just at the grocery store last night. Um, and they didn't have organic cucumbers, they had regular cucumbers for 68 cents a piece. So would I rather buy five cucumbers for 68 cents a piece or give me a price for organic cucumbers in A buck twenty, a buck? You know, it's it's gonna be significantly more. And I mean I I hate pesticides. I think pesticides are one of those, I mean, who's the idiot who came up with the idea of putting pesticides on our own food,
0: you know, toxins on our own food. This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. Nonetheless, that logic is
1: really there. And it's not just us that I read this really interesting book about the history of the Mississippi River and within 20 years of the introduction of metal pots to the upper Mississippi basin, um, the several thousand year tradition of pottery had disappeared
0: mm.
1: because 20 mm-hmm. in 20 years, one generation, mm-hmm. because why, why would you go mm-hmm. to, you know, take however long it takes to make a pot when you can just buy one that if you drop it, it's not gonna break mm-hmm. it's, and it doesn't mean it's better in no way is it better it's just what you can do. Here's here's what I'm kind of getting at is the entire economy is based on privatizing profits and externalizing costs. Mm-hmm. And you can get metal pots are a much better deal if you have externalized all the costs for them. right? Which is really what Bright Green Lies is about, is about let's talk about all those externalized costs. And those costs are pushed off onto... The sage grouse, on whose habitat you put the solar, the lithium mine, the the various birds and insects and tortoises who live on the land where the the solar panels are going to be put, et cetera, et cetera, and and whoever lived on where the mine is, you know, I was doing an interview years ago, and this is kind of funny. This guy was a de- the guy interviewing me was dedicated Marxist who believed that you can have An entire economy that's based on purely voluntary exchanges, where no human gets exploited. And I and he thought it could be an industrial economy. And I said, "Great. Uh, Do you have cities?" He said, "Yes." I said, "How do you get around in the city?" He said, "Buses." I said, "Great. What are your buses made of?" He said, "Metal." I said, "Great. How do you get people to work in the mines?" He said, "Well, you pay them a lot." I said, "Well, you know, mining is such a horrible way of living that that it was one of the first forms of slavery. But I'm going to grant you that. I will give you." you pay people just exorbitant amounts of money to spend our entire lives underground. Fine. But what do you do with the fact that every hard rock mine pollutes water? He said, well, you pay the local people to move. I said, what if they won't move? He said, we paid them more. I said, what if they've lived there for 5,000 years, their ancestors are buried in that soil and they will not move? He said, how many of them are there? And I said, I don't know. What does that make, 500? He said, well, the million people in the city vote, and they vote that those 500 people have to leave and then you kick them off. I said, ah, so what you're telling me is within less than one minute, you've gone from purely voluntary exchanges, Mm -hmm. a democratic empire, land theft from indigenous people and probably genocide, all so you can have a bus. And my point in, in this little story is that that's all inherent in the technology. You can't have the solar panel without the mine which means without the military to go take the land from the people whose land it was i'm
0: dying to go in this direction which is uh talk about cities why are cities inherently unsustainable and what is a city
1: okay a city is so i'm going to back up even further um I've been saying that civilization is inherently destructive, inherently ecologically destructive, for for many many years, and so then, what what is civilization? A civilization is a way of life characterized by the growth of cities, and that's defensible both linguistically and historically, because the word civilization comes from the root kivatetos, means state or city. That's fine, but what's a city? A city. I've defined as people living in numbers large enough to require the importation of resources. And that distinguishes it from a village or a camp. Um, you know, that the Tolowa lived where I live now, and they would have villages of, you know, a few hundred people, but it wasn't, under my definition, a city. Why? Because they didn't require the importation of resources. They ate the salmon who were here locally. And a few things happen as soon as you require the importation of resources. require being the key word. The first is that your way of life can never be sustainable because if you require the importation of resources, it means you've denuded the landscape of that particular resource. And as your city grows, it will require ever uh, an ever larger area. I remember having a, a dinner with a friend of mine 30 some years ago, John Osborne, where he took a napkin and he wrote, a small dot in the center, he said, that's the city, and then a larger area around it. And he said, that's the area that the city has to draw from. And as a city, then he made the central dot bigger and bigger. And then the other one had to get bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. So um, so it means two things. One is that the way of life can never be sustainable, because if you've you've denuded the area of that land of that resource and you denude ever larger areas you grow. The other is that your way of life must be based on violence, because if you require the importation of resources, that's as opposed to just sort of wanting it. Like there were buffalo robes here on the coast, and there were shells in Montana, but that wasn't a necessity. That was just, you know, somebody comes through and they've got one and you trade. I mean, mm-hmm. humans trade. That's what we that's one of the things we do. Mm-hmm. And but if you require the
0: importation of resources, and the people in the next watershed over won't
1: trade you for it, you will take it because you require it.
0: So this brings to mind the concept of land base. You use the term land base a lot. That's obviously an important term to you. Um, can, I'm having a hard time phrasing that as a question, but what is a land base? And why is that important to think in terms of the land base? Um, I don't actually know how you define it. I mean, how, how
1: is it different than a particular biome a land base would be the area the area on which you live and from from whence you draw the, the place you live the place you you derive food whether it's gathering or hunting and the place you poop the place where your waste go and for the land base ends up being a little bit uh not precise because for hawaiian islanders the land base would have included the water around the, the land it wouldn't just be a land base it would be and for all sorts of pacific islanders their you know their their land base would have included as far as they could row and mm-hmm. and fish and um so that's the land base is the place from and, and including this for non humans you know, I would say that perhaps, perhaps, land base—a land base would be another another term for for an individual range, or a community range. You know, bears will have. It, it gets difficult though because you know, let's say a bear has a range of eight square miles. You know, more or less making it up, but that's just one bear. What about the entire bear community? Mm-hmm. You know, what is there and the bear? Because I know mother. Daughter bears oftentimes establish territories next to their next to their mothers, and they'll they'll hang out some together. or wolves will have a, a, a territory that's theirs, and if they leave it, that, that belongs to other wolves, and the other wolves will kill them. Um, so I guess that would be the land basis. You could say it's the, the
0: communal range is, is, is how I would define. it. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. and, and cities, uh, like the place that, where you live. Is different from the place where you get your resources, well,
1: and that's then the plus- people
0: out here in the in the outer reaches, they live on a place that is giving resources, uh, giving resources, and then maybe accepting pollution and waste from the city. Well, and also the the deal
1: that everybody always says is that the people in the country get culture from the city, and the people in the city get food from the from the country. It's like that doesn't sound like really a fair deal in many ways, but yes, it's exactly it. So New York City, where does where does the water come from? In that case, it's usually the Hudson River and from the upper, what is the Adirondacks or whatever it is up up north, or is that whatever mountains it is up north? And um, where does the wood come from? Where does the brick come from? The materials for the brick. Where does the energy come from? Where where does the poop go? Um, and in the case of New York City, they used to dump it in the ocean. And now what they do is they put it on a train and they send it to a county in Alabama. Um, and that county now stinks so bad that hmm. nobody can go sit on their porch. And and this is part of the problem is that you get a problem of scale. That um, one of the ways, in one of my books I talked about this is one apple, can taste pretty good. Ten apples is going to give you a stomach ache, and I'm, a million apples falling on your head is going to kill you. And it's the same with poop. That you know, one human pooping out in the forest, actually, the plant is like poop over here. Come on, you know, it's 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 food for the for the slugs, for the bacteria, for the plants. You know, a hundred people pooping in the same place is is a little bit of a different thing. And, you know, a million people pooping in the same place is a complete disaster. A quick story about poop. I remember reading this
0: when I was after this. I want you to start talking about like solutions. But OK,
1: Okay. Okay. the the, the very quick story about poop is there was a guy down in the Amazon. uh, And he's up to his up to his waist in the water. And this fish comes up and starts poking him in the butt. And he's like, what's going on? He's a white guy. He's going, what's going on? And the natives are like, the fish is hungry. Like we poop in the water and the fish eat it. And so the fish is just, the Mm -hmm. fish was begging. Right. (laughs) And and, I mean, so small amounts. I mean, again, it's no big deal if you take in 50 pieces of wood into New York City. It is a big deal if you take in 50 million board feet. Mm -hmm. And cities are never going to be any different. And they can't supply themselves very quickly. Somebody did a a number of people have done studies of how many people, if they were intensively growing their own food on rooftops, on on all lawn turned into garden, et cetera, et cetera. And the population of Portland would have to be like one quarter of what it is. And the same thing with Seattle, that if you turned every single space into growing vegetables, and that's just calories, that's not even a balanced diet. Mm Um, So, I mean, they're they're just the whole green city thing is just completely nuts. Anyway, now you wanted to go solutions, you said. Sure. So what's your question?
0: Well, um, we're pointing to the problems associated with uh, industrial civilization. Um, If we agree that industrial civilization cannot be sustained, then what is the plan for kind of winding it down?
1: Well, every cell in my body wishes that we would have a voluntary transformation Mm -hmm. where, you know, if I was in charge, I would immediately change the subsidies so that, um, like right now, the world's commercial fishing fleets are subsidized to a greater value than their catch. Mm -hmm. And I would just change that. I would, I would use navies to sink illegal shipping, illegal, sorry, illegal fishing vessels. Um, And instead of putting money toward i mean deforestation is the same it, it logging on national forests actually costs money for the federal for the american public and instead i would put the same money toward taking out old mining roads taking out old logging roads i would i would subsidize the right things and i would start easy things i would get rid of golf courses i would get rid of retractable stadium roofs i would get rid of all these things that are complete luxuries lawns and and then uh, and then we can start, once that's done, we can start talking about more difficult cuts. And, but there's not going to be a voluntary transformation. Um, every cell in my body wants that, but it's not going to happen. So what that means to me, every bit of my work is about, can be summed up in this way of living cannot last, And when it's done, I would prefer there's more of the world left rather than less. So I think what people can do is they can try to protect every scrap of wild place. Mm -hmm. They can protect wild beings. They can take care of wild beings, wild plants and animals and fungi the best they can. They can set aside wild places. This even includes backyards. Right. You know, who knows where? I mean, I've known people who live in fairly urban places who who have rewilded their backyards and suddenly they've got chipmunks and chickadees and all sorts of wildlife that they hadn't seen in years. So I think all that's important. And on the larger scale, people say, I think the first thing we have to do is to be honest. Frankly, I love, there is much that's crazy about Western medicine, but there is much that's also good about it. And one of the things that I really like is, friend of mine's a doctor always says, correct diagnosis is the first step toward proper treatment. And when people say, for example, how can we save wild salmon? That's not really what they're asking. What they're really asking is how can we save wild salmon without stopping industrial logging without stopping industrial fishing, without stopping without taking out dams, without stopping the murder of the oceans and without stopping global warming, the answer is you can't. And if people really want to save wild salmon, they didn't stop industrial logging, stop industrial fishing, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then at that point, hope and pray that the salmon accept those offerings and that the salmon do come back. But but environmentalism really feels to me like you have this body on a table and uh, you have all these nurses and doctors who are putting on bandages, bleeding out, and they're doing everything they can to putting in transfusions or trying to save this person on the table, except the serial killer is still stabbing them in the chest as they're doing all this other stuff. And one of the things we have to do is to stop the primary harm. And what that means is we need to stop industrial civilization. There are stuff we can do in the meantime, and we we talk in the in the book about the importance of restoring prairies. We talk about the importance of, of letting forests come back. We talk about... Um, it, okay, I am not one of those people who says, oh, nature's going to be fine because nature's already not fine. Right. And that said, it's, it's like a murder suicide situation, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and l- the thing is, living bodies have a tremendous capacity for regeneration mm-hmm. as long as they're not pushed too far. So, um, you have in your life, I suppose, gotten a cut somewhere um, right. and, it, and it healed. The body can heal. But if you were cut so badly that you bled the death, you would not be able to heal. But up until that point, and sometimes the healing can take a long time. So I am in no way saying that, oh, everything's going to be fine. The earth is fine. We can't kill the planet. We actually can kill the planet.
0: Yeah. But having said that, it's a question of how many species are we going to take it out with us on our way out? You know, exactly. so the earth is not going to be fine. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Derek Jensen. Please read his book, Bright Green Lies, and check out his Endgame talks on YouTube.